0: Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. Writers and Illustrators of the Future is one of the longest-running writing competitions in the world, with four decades of providing a helping hand as initially conceived by Al Hubbard. I also want to let you know that the Writers to Future volumes are available in bookstores throughout the US, Canada, the UK, South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. So whether you're looking for top new voices in the genre or an aspiring writer, or artists looking to see what these artists have done to win, this book is for you. Today's guest is Joe Henry the managing director of Book Brunch, a daily news service and information site for the book industry. She has worked in the book industry for over 40 years, starting at the literary agency A.M. Heath. She has worn probably every possible hat in the publishing industry. She joined Book Brunch in 2018. Joe is co-founder of the Book Marketing Society and a former chair of both the Book Society and the Book Trade Charity. Galaxy Press has worked with Book Brunch for several years, but I had not met her until i was in london at the end of last year the end of 2023 and we were able to meet and um, had lunch and discussed all types of things uh publishing and our relationship in the uk and i asked her if she'd be interested in becoming a guest on this podcast which i'm very happy that she acceded to my offer and here we are now so a lot of has transpired in publishing over the last two years especially as a result of ai And um, we have lots of things we're going to be talking about here. But first, welcome, Joe. Hello, John. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Yes. So before we get into my questions, please give me like an overview of your history in publishing. My intro was somewhat glib in that point, knowing you would be able to do a much better job.
1: (laughs) Well, as you say, over 40 years, uh, my first job in publishing was working for a literary agent. um, And that was... A really fascinating introduction, because that's all about the authors, and that really is what powers the industry. I then moved on into publishing, and I worked for about 12 years for a company called Victor Galantz, which a lot of people of a certain age will remember fondly. It published science fiction and fantasy. It um, had a reputation for being a left-wing publisher. It was then bought by an American company called Houghton Mifflin. Uh, And when that really didn't work out, it was the time of big mergers. Um, You know, all the publishers were consolidating. And it was then sold to Castle, who is a a very well-established British publisher, which has been folded since then into the Hachette uh, group. And I think it still survives as an imprint and still does science fiction and fantasy. Um, But the glory days of Galantz are long over, sadly. And after that, I went to work for a company called Book Marketing Limited, which is a bit of a misnomer. It was a company that actually does market research on behalf of publishers. It had originally been started by the UK Publishers Association as an attempt to discover who was buying all those books that were being published. And when the Publishers Association went through a bit of a purge and it decided it didn't need a lot of ancillary services it was offering, and Book Marketing Limited became an independent company at that stage. And I joined them a few years into their um, independent life. And we used to run a precursor of what book data was, which I think is certainly in uh, 12 or 14 markets around the world now. It's a a system that measures sales through bookshops, through point of sale, through their till uh, receipts. We used to do it in a very um, kind of unscientific way, possibly. Uh, Every week, the five big bookselling chains would send us in their sales figures. And we just crunched the numbers and told those five chains, you know, what the market was looking like because they were such a large part of the market that that was kind of worth doing. Anyway, we lost that job when when BookGate <laughs> came on stream. Um, but then we, we had a very long running survey and I'm so proud to say it's still going and it's called Books and Consumers. And it's gone through various iterations on its fieldwork methodology, but it still today measures book purchases in the UK. And it has a panel of people who every week report by ISBN the book they've bought. And that builds up into the most incredible database, which says, I mean, I think, you know, it's got 25 years data sitting there. And if you want to profile the buyers of even the most obscure genre now, you could really drill down and say, okay, people who buy this kind of book live in the Midlands and only spend $6.99 on a book. And they buy those books because they've seen an advertisement in Tesco or whatever it might be. So it is the most fantastic resource. And then that was owned by Nielsen Latterly, Books and Consumers, Mm -hmm. um, who I worked for for a bit, but uh, big corporations, (laughs) <laughs> yes, and we yes. all know the issues with big corporations, so we eventually parted ways very amicably and I went on to work for Book brunch, which I had helped found in two thousand and eight but hadn't worked for um, and I was really delighted when they asked me to become their their managing director and that, that This is a wonderful job because rather like book marketing limited, it helps you see the whole industry, you get involved with all aspects of it, and I really like that
0: which is great. And we've definitely taken advantage of what Book branch has to offer for our ingress into the publishing world of UK or, or revisiting of that because we were very strong and then weren't, and now we're working building back up again. So, mm-hmm. you know, your your help has been very, very vital for us. So I guess is like an overview, your perspective on publishing is is, I mean, you've got A lot of years now of working with it so what do you see as the future holding in on a global scale we'll we'll drill down on some things but just on a global scale
1: well that's very interesting um i mean the primacy of the english language is obviously still a key part of the success of british publishing and british publishers are the largest book exporters in the world i think um we've traditionally had what was called commonwealth markets so you know canada australia Mm. South Africa, all very vibrant book markets. Um, We've always had a a, a toehold in Europe with English language books. Actually, that's been growing quite a lot um, to the extent that sometimes now European publishers may not even bother to translate books. They might just publish them in English for particular markets because English is so widely spoken, particularly in Western Europe. And America is is a very interesting market quite a lot (laughs) of smaller players are now beginning to look at new opportunities in the american book market so rather than selling the distinction is between selling rights and selling books obviously Uh, you sell rights to another publisher to publish that book in their market or you sell your own books in that market where you work with a distributor or a a local office to kind of market it locally for you Um, And the trade between the U.K. and the U.S. has always been, you know, incredibly vibrant. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I'm always fascinated when you look at bestseller lists, how different they are in the U.S. and the U.K. I mean, you have a few big brand authors on the fiction lists, but by and large, the nonfiction lists tend to be very different. So our tastes definitely differ and our looks differ. If you ever looked at book covers on the same book in the two markets, often very different approaches.
0: Well, whether you decided to own him or not, your prince dominated. Uh, ah, yes,
1: he made <laughs> us a, a very good year last year. Thank you, yes. Prince Harry. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. As well as in, in America, he did yeah. quite well.
1: And then we ended the year actually with an American superstar, with Britney, you know. Yes.
0: Sing. That was a surprise. That was a bit of a surprise. I didn't see that coming, but I, I don't track that that age group. So that's also part of the importance of with tracking not just – Because as you as you grow up with with publishing, you have your own, you know. Like as with music, I have certain authors I like. I have certain musicians I like, you know, and I follow. And Mm -hmm. you know, I can see the, you know, I hear the new stuff with whether it's Britney or any other famous musicians that that date football stars. I don't track that so much. But then all of a sudden, something comes on from the '60s or '70s, and I'm there singing along with it, and it's just Mm -hmm. and so I didn't see this thing coming with, with Brittany. So how much of, for, for an author, because I have had this come up. I had a, a, a live Q&A with Orson Scott Card on, over the weekend. And one of the questions were, what do I do? I'm I'm a young author. I'm a beginning author. I'm a teen. And I want to be able, how do I reach older audience? Huh. So in terms of now an older author reaching a younger audience, which is more a perspective i got, but it goes both directions there, what would... What do you have to say about that on, on how to do that? Because it's, like I said, the, the one thing with, with Britney was a bit of a surprise. Not that it sold well, but that it sold so well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. I mean, I slightly agree with you. I thought it would be an interesting book, but it just got so much coverage. I mean, the publishers here were Simon & Schuster. I don't know who they, they were in the States. They did do a really terrific job on that book, and just kind mm-hmm. of, you know, made it the book that everyone was talking about. And often that doesn't translate into sales because right. it gets covered so widely into, you know, newspapers or magazines or online that people think, well, I've I've heard it all. But somehow something about her her fan base they wanted the the, the full thing, and I think we've seen that phenomenon before, perhaps with the Madonna books. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember there was one sure. book. That everyone thought was going to bomb like crazy, but people just wanted to own it because it was an object that they wanted to be seen with. Um, so, what's your specific question around a younger author appealing to an older audience?
0: Yeah, and and conversely, an older author appealing to a younger audience. How do you reach, you know, because mm. you got Gen Z and and Gen A are now reading print books. You know, Gosh, it's like Gen A.
1: Who are they? They're the really young, are they?
0: Exactly but they're readers. And my look at when I first started reading, you know, I really got into it. I was in college. And so now I look at college age students, that's Gen Z and not in a few years from now, it's going to be Gen A. So Mm -hmm. you can't.
1: Yeah, so the younger audience, if you're not already a committed book reader, and we did a shed load of research around children's readings when reading when I was at Book Marketing Limited, BML. Um, Girls tend to be heavier readers than boys. Boys from the age of kind of seven, eight, get involved in sports. And it was very interesting. We kind of proved um, there was a life cycle for, for, for men. So they might lose interest or their attention was taken by something else when they were kind of, you know, seven, eight, they'd go into sports, their reading wasn't cool, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'd grow up and they'd start dating and they'd meet someone and they'd have a family. About 35, quite a lot of men come back into the market think oh do you know what I really enjoyed reading as a child you know who am I going to where am I going to pick books up again so um, and interestingly that audience between those ages well I suppose between 20 and 35 have been particularly affected by audiobooks they've been particularly keen on audiobooks and that has possibly brought some of them back into the market earlier than they would have been if they were just relying on the print format but in a way if you were a keen reader as a child you're always a key reader But what I will say is I think book talk has brought a lot of people into the market who were very light, occasional readers. Mm -hmm. They've made books a more desirable and um, a more accessible format than people had thought. I mean, I think people thought books weren't for them. You know, bookshops perhaps might be slightly overwhelming. They didn't know what they were looking for. They didn't want to be seen as, you know, not sophisticated, but BookTok has encouraged them. And obviously that's been helped hugely by online booksellers. No one knows what you're buying if you're buying online. Uh, so the whole thing has really created a really interesting new market for publishers, but it's a young market. So mm. I don't think BookTok is probably reaching older, older book readers. So where do older people find out about their books? <laughs> Well, I tend, obviously, to read review pages in newspapers. Now, that's very old-fashioned. I don't think anyone does that anymore. <laughs> um, but if you're a younger author, I suppose getting shortlisted for a prize, winning a prize, that's definitely, if it's one of the big ones, still a really big thing and will create a market and an audience. Mm-hmm. Um I do think social media, even among older people, plays a part for sure. If you're on X uh, and you see a book being referred to, you'll look it up and you'll think, oh, that sounds interesting. Book clubs remains a very important part of the market, that, you know, word of mouth recommendation thing.
0: So we Um, say book clubs, like which, because like the science fiction book club was a big deal like 30 years ago mm. and I had my own subscription to it. And, I was, and then I was just kind of like,
1: yeah, they don't really exist anymore. No, do they? no. Yeah. So
0: I'm not, I don't really track the book clubs cause it's so easy now on Amazon and there's so mm-hmm. many different online affiliates to Amazon. Goodreads has their own thing. There's like, yeah. you know, all that stuff there. Kobo no, has I was thinking
1: more book reading groups as it oh, were. Okay. So, Got you it. know, they tend to be, um uh, Friends who band together, although libraries um, and other even workplaces sometimes offer those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, when I was uh, towards the end of my time at Nielsen, when I was still working with books and the consumers on the children's side, we were tracking uh, fewer children were reading, but those who were avid readers were reading more than they ever had. So, the market seemed to be coming at big becoming a little bit more concentrated, which is obviously slightly concerning. Yeah, And I know in the States, there used to be something called the National Endowment for the Arts that did mm-hmm. uh, reading uh, research. And they were tracking some really quite alarming figures the last time I looked at that. And that was a few years ago about how few people actually read on a regular basis, read books on a regular basis. So whether that's changed, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I know there was a problem, obviously with the pandemic, with um, mm-hmm. literacy in general dropping. You know, there's there's also the the factor of you know as literacy drops, so does people's tendency to read. But I'm just curious how much um, audiobooks have been able to compensate for that because audiobooks used to be you listen to audiobooks. Audio well, originally audiobooks were for the side impaired and mm-hmm. then they became something you just it, if you have time you go listen to an audiobook and now you don't listen to audiobooks anymore you read audiobooks you know mm-hmm. so it's become at least here in, in America a substitute or an um another way of reading a book is by listening sure. to an audiobook is that yeah. have cuz it's a couple of years ago it was audiobook sales that made publishing industry overall sales up for the year Hmm. Whereas print books and e-books were down, audiobooks were up more than they were down. So the overall publishing industry was up because of audio.
1: Yeah. I mean, audiobooks is interesting. The market has shown extraordinary growth, but from an incredibly low base. So it's still probably less than 10% of the market.
0: Um, right. You know, no, it it's, is. But, yeah. it just, but like still, I said, it was just enough. I was surprised on the Nielsen Bookscan, your, yeah. you know, one of their surveys, it just had a depth. The increase in that during the first year of the pandemic was enough to offset the drop in other sales.
1: And it's fair to say that books came out of the pandemic in a really good place. I think Mm -hmm. after that initial shock of bookshops being closed and no one actually knowing where to buy their books, and of course the online retailers eventually um, made hay while the sun shone and kind of saw a big market share increase, the independent bookshops, the books on the high street, rallied very, very quickly. People Suddenly got into the mindset of I want to support local businesses and I realize it might cost me a little bit more, but it's just down the road and I'm going to go there and buy a book. And that effect has kind of lasted until now. I think this year is going to be much tougher. And of course, you know, particularly in the UK, we're struggling with huge impact of cost of living rises. Energy has become, you know, kind of very, very expensive here. Although I will say that whenever I used to look at this at Book Marketing Limited, books, because they're low ticket items, tend to weather recessions better than some other consumer goods. Um, And if that feeling that books are, you know, a fantastic form of entertainment, that I think people have rediscovered it in a way over the last five years, if that persists, then I hope, although book prices have gone up quite considerably. I've had to go up quite
0: easy. But then you have your your ebooks, which has also become mm. you know, it 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 really spiked and then it but it, di- it dipped a little bit, but it's been holding a higher range. But as people and, and some of the marketing publicity has, has gone on with, with books that for the price of two cups of coffee at a coffee shop, you can get yourself this nice book. Or even a if you're, you know, you have a cup of, of, just one cup of coffee, you know, of a fancy coffee at a, a coffee shop is the same as the price of a book. And you get people to actually realize what you just said there and and see that like, okay, I'll skip a coffee. I'll get this book. You, can, you know, that does make it, you know, still affordable as, you know, you, that.
1: I paid four pounds, 10 P for a cup of coffee in London today.
0: Oh my <laughs> so word.
1: I, I, when I saw the price, I nearly said, Do you know what? I don't think I want that cup of coffee. <laughs>
0: That's amazing. But, I mean,
1: basically two of those, and I could buy a paperback. I mean, you know, yeah. it's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, an actual print book. Yeah, so when I was there um, and when we met, I was, we were walking around and went to lots of shops, and it was really nice seeing how well they were doing. They were just, there were just a lot of people in the shops. Mm-hmm. They seemed to be doing a lot of business. There was a lot of um, stacks of books coming in They were being shelved. Mm-hmm. So that was –
1: that was just before Christmas, wasn't it, really? It was. Yeah, because I was, you know, that last week in December, I did hit up a couple of Waterstones with my shopping list, and they were buzzing. They really yeah. were. So that was fantastic. Which was,
0: which was great. It was great to yeah. see that. Yeah. And uh, one thing you're you're talking about also, the, the British – so again, we're talking on both sides of, of the ocean here or the pond here we've got American English, British English, and you're, I'm going to say, you know, British English. And you're say, well, no, we're English and you're American English. So whichever, the two Englishes um, are different enough. What we did, I don't know, three or four years ago, maybe it's five years now on writers, of the future, we start publishing the stories in whatever English the author writes in. Okay. So, so if it's um, if they're from Australia, then we'll, will publish the way they wrote it with, with their words in UK with theirs, in, in America with theirs, South Africa with theirs. So we, we try to keep it so it's true to whatever
1: the uh, country North. they are,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, to make it so that truly is international. Because we have winners from eight, nine countries now every year publishing mm-hmm. the, in the book. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's all over the place. So does that make – did any of your of your studies show – uh, anything either way on that, like on having an American English in in Britain, in England, if that causes, or in the UK, if that causes people to go, oh, this is this is sub-English or rejecting? I think rejecting... people are
1: reasonably agnostic about it now. I think okay. they watch so much American television that, that they know that faucet is tap and, you know, sidewalk is pavement and garbage is rubbish. And I don't think people particularly notice that colour is spelt without a U in American English. I mean, it always catches me out in Wordle, I tell you. Yeah. What can this OR at the end be? And I realize it's favor or color or whatever it may be. (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah. But we have it, so it does both ways. And when we first started doing it, I was like circling it, circling it. Oh, wait a minute. This
1: is American. And, um, I mean, I work on professional magazines with the American um, trade press publishers weekly. And we have to have a little debate at the beginning because it's going to be published internationally. Are we going to do American English or are we going to do English English? And <laughs> then I go through and change all the S's to Z's if it's American English. So I, th- I, think, people, I think people just accept it now, although for the British market, publishers normally anglicize it um, if it's going to be big in any way i suppose mm-hmm. they don't if it's a just a bought-in book but if they're publishing it under their own imprint they'd anglicize it and of course digital production when you say
0: anglicize it you mean british yes okay
1: and uh digital production technology would make that super easy to do it so.
0: does yeah. it does okay i was just curious on that because it's um we were very proud okay look we're doing this thing here and just mm-hmm. someone said you got a typo here. No, we don't. It's just <laughs> how it's spelled Well, out. as long as
1: you have it somewhere in small type, this is what we're doing so they don't think you have
0: yeah. got is it this, wrong. Yes, exactly. So now on um, how books or how publishers – I mean, there's 4 million – there's up to like in 2022 there are 4 million books published. Granted, it's all like online um, and uh, I guess – we can get into here a little bit of like, you've got this, this scene where you have all these books being published, Mm -hmm. but the average income made by an author is maybe $500 or that would be like what, 200 pounds a year, Mm -hmm. 300 pounds a year. So it's, it's a definite um, low return. So what is the, what's that, what's the trend on that how it's going there on, on, because there's no more book Expo America. When we were at Fra- I was at Frankfurt, it was down from 5,000 five thousand or fifty five hundred um, exhibitors to like three thousand plus exhibitors. So, but you've got UAE where it's Sharjah Book Fair has definitely grown quite a bit. So the Middle East is is definitely growing their their publishing world. What do you see as a trend on that, and how that, how an author or someone who's into, and we'll get into this indie versus self versus, uh, traditional, um, but how an author can weather that particular tide.
1: Yes. I think it's probably fair to say things are tougher now for authors than they ever have been, but there are far more authors than there ever have been, because, uh, the bar on how you enter the publishing market has been lowered to a certain extent. Um, and, quite rightly a lot of people think they can write a, a a pretty decent book i think consolidation among publishers forming huge conglomerates has meant that there's less time and energy to publish slow burners and i think what we used to call kind of mid market authors have found it very difficult i think if you don't break through in your first two three books you probably get dropped and that's tough for authors because they're writing books as good as anything else on those shelves and Mm -hmm. somehow it just hasn't worked and the publisher has not felt compelled to keep going with that investment. I mean, clearly with indie authors, by which I mean the smaller authors, sorry, indie publishers, by which I mean the the smaller publishers, who tend to be very um, much more adventurous than the large publishers, they Mm -hmm. do pick up fantastic authors. I mean, I'm thinking of One World here now, who are a very small player. They've had three Booker winners in the last 10 years, which is the most astonishing track record. And... I think they've kept on to all those authors, but quite often what happens is an author has a breakout success and one of the big boys sweeps in and bears them off, you know, to the celestial heights, as it were. I'm not sure <laughs> they're necessarily <laughs> better off up there, but mm-hmm. and very quickly they'll find that if they don't perform with the next book, you know, they're not going to be top of the list anymore and they'll be sinking back down.
0: I, had a lot- one, I, have, I have one author uh, friend, uh, Hugh Howey. Are you Oh, interested? yes, yes, yes.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: So um, uh, he's our most recent judge for the contest. But mm-hmm. when I spoke with him, he started off self publishing mm-hmm. and then he was swept up, you know, like you said, and into the lofty heights. And he left that to go back to being self published because they only want one book a year and has to follow the formula. It has to be mm-hmm. this size. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I said, I'm not interested in doing that. So mm-hmm. he had already created his own audience and they were going for taking advantage of that. And all of a, he's got one TV series, a second TV series that should be coming live momentarily. And a third one's in the works based on his book. So he's, he's quite successful, but he went back to being self um, because of that, that he can, mm-hmm. he can control his own vertical and horizontal, but he's also willing to work and do the, yeah. the other, the other hats.
1: And that's absolutely it. I do think self-publishing, um, by which I mean the author publishing themselves, has been a fantastic boom market and fantastic for a certain type of author. Mm-hmm. Um, but given that quite a lot of authors are shy, retiring people, it's absolutely agony for them to, you know, promote themselves via social media or say this is the best book ever written by, you know, me, the author, kind of thing. Right. Um, but for those who um, really uh, address it as a proper job, and I think Hugh Harry is one of those where he sat down and said, who's my audience? How am I going to reach that audience? What advertising am I going to buy? What kind of you know keywords am I going to make them search on? And does that day in, day out as a proper job? Then he absolutely reaps the rewards. And I mm-hmm. think it you know, has clearly been much more successful doing that than by a traditional publisher. So, yeah, really. um, And there is huge energy in the self publishing market. I mean I Book Brunch runs the Selfies Book Awards, uh, which is for the best self published book in three categories each year. And we do it with, um, with Ingram Spark, who are obviously huge mm-hmm. international printers, and the London Book Fair and Nielsen Book, in fact, all get involved in it. And we have a children's book category, an adult fiction book category, and a general nonfiction category. And, um, every year I think, gosh, you know, one year we'll get something that we couldn't possibly, you know, we won't get anything submitted that we could give a prize to because it's all going to be, you know, rubbish, self-indulgent rubbish. Yeah. Every year I'm so surprised by the quality of the fantastic quality of what mm-hmm. comes in. I just think, wow, this is absolutely amazing. These people are doing just amazing work. And sometimes for not very much reward it's kind of sad really but there are probably far too many books published for sure such a crowded market and i mean that's the problem
0: yeah it's a uh, like i said the uh, the awards is is one way but willing to do the work like in publishing there are definite hats that need to be worn to make it as, as an author for your book to make it, you've got various hats that somebody's got to wear and to, um, was it Margaret Atwood, you know, to, to write a book and then have it get discovered. However, much later, not to your benefit, you know, but it's a, um, it's getting the book actually properly edited. So the last thing you want to have is that it goes out there with typos in it or, or miss typeset. Yeah. That's just, that's a definite a death knoll for um, a book.
1: Yes, but a lot of self-publishers now will hire in professional, you know, editing services, cover design. Um, they tend to do their marketing themselves, but they might hire in someone to do the distribution for them, even someone to do the PR. So I was quite surprised. I think one of our early winners of the selfish Book Awards got up there and thanked, you know, her team around her. So she'd almost turned herself into a small publisher, and was almost at a stage where she could offer those services to other self-published authors, and thus probably is born another independent publisher. So
0: right, but that's your, to your point there on that is for those listening, there is legitimacy to that so i went not because i preach this constantly like you've got you know you can't have typos you got to do this you got to do that but getting it from someone who's credible yourself then (laughs) you don't have to listen to me asserting something um but just the importance of that i just some people think oh yeah it's a great and then i start reading it because i have to i read almost a book a week for my podcast and um so some you know i'll take i'll get recommended stuff and every now and then I'll get sent something that's like, I pass on it, you know, because it's just, it's not worth it. It's, it's a turn off automatically. So can you discuss that a little bit, just the importance of the, the basics in publishing to have some type of form of success?
1: Do you mean in, in terms of how you, how you? Uh, yeah, packaging,
0: it? preparing yeah. packaging and even getting it onto the market, which is all part of the, the marketing hat.
1: I mean, absolutely. So, writing in grammatical and well-spelt English is absolutely critical. Um, whether that's a bit snobby of us in the industry, but we'd turn off immediately if we saw a book that wasn't properly presented in that in that form. Perhaps we're the last bastion of correct writing. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, I am. I mean, it's very interesting actually, and maybe that kind of new uh, phrase that's sending a chill through the industry or some of the creatives in the industry, AI, Um, it's going to be interesting to see how self-published authors harness those tools because there's definitely a trend for self-published authors to make their books available in audio format.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, And the costs of producing audiobooks are quite high until you start thinking about, can you use AI-generated voices to do your audiobook? They're almost at the point where it's good enough to do that without really irritating people. Uh, So that will mean if you... But not yet. I think... I've heard some quite good ones, but I've also heard some really terrible ones. Mm -hmm. So it's nearly there. It's nearly going to be mainstream. But also cover design, I'm very impressed every year with the covers that the selfies authors uh, have on their books. But again, you know, designing artwork through AI is uh, opens up whole new worlds, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. If you've seen some of the stuff that people have put out there, it's really very, some of it quite spooky. Some of it very clever indeed.
0: Yeah. I'm, and am I'm still, I don't have a, um, issues with, you know, AI, Basically, but I, because I've got an art contest and I've got a writing contest, I'm interested in people being able to do that. The creator, you know, that the senior player on the on the set is an actual person is as as the creator. If the i if the AI takes over, and there was that movie that came out last year, the creator, mm-hmm. you know, where it's AI. If if that takes over as creator, then that's not that violates the terms of our of our contest but yeah. also that it's a bit of a misnomer to say that I'll have to say at least now but that ai can actually create you know it can like skim and it can recombine and reconfigure and so you can put in stuff and then it comes out and i just had judith anderley on recently she's uh, part of the um, LMBPM publishing house and they publish a bunch of books constantly and, uh, they created the 20 books to 50 K conference. But, um, she said she had some recent thing where some it was either politician or lawyer, high level lawyer, i um, preparing for a, a case submitted to the the court, you know, and it turned out that he went to AI to put the brief together. Huh. And one of the, one of the cases that was given was just totally made up by the AI, you know? Yeah. I mean, you it know? becomes
1: kind of a, a, a closed thing, doesn't it? So the AI starts self-referencing in the end. Yeah. So, it's, it's, I mean, dear me, there's lots of problems down the road for for, for that kind of material. And yes. I think, you know, that's not helping, obviously, with the plethora of content that's listed on, let's say, Amazon, because there's a whole load of kind of books written by God knows who, but it's mm-hmm. created through AI. That really doesn't help. I mean, there's a load of junk yeah. to wade your way through anyway, so...
0: Yeah, there's the, how do you pronounce it, Gigo or Gigo, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. Hmm. So because it can't analyze, it just, it can like put stuff together and boom, here you go. It sounds authoritative, which is what it's supposed to do.
1: That feeds back into people wanting to support local bookshops because at least it's a genuine bookshop with a genuine person there who's selected genuine books for you to read. So yeah, yeah. There's authenticity that's going to be uh, a real plus point for for real books and real bookshops
0: yeah there's still i think it still holds through the three major ways that people will find books is one is it's an author they love so
1: mm-hmm. they go back
0: and buy the author uh two word of mouth yeah and then three is uh is they'll take a look at the bestseller list and see what is the bestseller yeah. list yeah say reviews bestseller list type thing yeah. now going back to one point you made on um on grammar and this has been a point that I've run into with, with the writers of future contest was um, people asserting that you don't have to follow the rules of grammar. You've got like um, gender neutral, but then you've got that whole thing there on gender on not using he or her, she or his and said, they, them, you know, mm-hmm. where it gets confusing to, to actually follow in reading. And I've had various you know, of the, the classic judges, you know, the, what, that are long time bestsellers um, just say that's, you can you got conversational, then you got actually what's actually written. Have you just found anything to be a good operating rule in that? Cause you got people trying to change grammar, change person spelling, you know, trying to use what they spelled using their iPhone instead of what actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think really this is more an editorial question for a publishing house as to what their policy is. I mean, a lot of um, publishing houses now are using, well, not a lot, but some of them, a significant number of them are using sensitivity readers. If the subject is something that is a sensitive one, there's all this argument rolling around about, you know, people writing in the voice or persona of someone. Who they're not. So, can you really pretend you're? I don't know, an Irishman if you're not an Irishman, or a Native American if you're not a Native American. Which is goes to the heart of what is creativity and what is a writer. And you know, are they there to imagine themselves as other people in other worlds, or are they there to reflect their own experiences? Which I think is limiting, personally. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's an argument that's kind of rolling around the industry at the moment. I think it's got to be up to the author. If they want to write a book that has everybody who's neutral pronoun, then that's a particular type of book. It's going to be quite difficult to tell who's talking at what stage. Um, But if it's reflecting the reality that that book is about, there's a whole load of gender neutral uh, aliens or whatever they might be, Mm. uh, then that's how you've got to do it. I don't see
0: much of that, though. Do you? Um, yeah, just on the submission side of life. Over, I mean, yeah. I just I see it. I don't, I'm not on the judging panel at all, so mm-hmm. I I see this stuff after the fact. Aww. But uh, things come to me. So okay, what about this? What's our policy on this? Where they need. I mean, a, if you're
1: writing science fiction and fantasy, I could see you might be stretching the boundaries a bit more than if you were writing kind yeah. of you know real world fiction, as it were.
0: Yeah, the old Westerns is going to be very much old Western. It's going to be the guy's the guy and the girl's the girl and the outlaw's the bad guy's the bad guy. And, you know, you can even stereotype He's got the black hat. The other guy's got the white hat and, you know, whatever. You know, it's just, but that's also that that genre. Um, Yes, I think
1: stereotypes are more frowned on in a funny sort of way. I think if you write books that have got terrible stereotypes in it, people will say, you what this is very old-fashioned what do you think you're doing you know what's the point of this
0: yeah it's um but in the main thing we run into is it's there's a there's a line there's a distinction between a storyline and telling a good story and pushing an agenda and Mm. we've had that over the years it's it's gotten a little bit less but at the beginning of, of certain movements you've got the uh urge to push your agenda and so mm-hmm. your story is written around trying to force a message yeah. and make a story build around it those and generally speaking
1: work. that's not a very successful book because it's, that's the fact it's not based on the the narrative drive it's based on trying to push through a message so that makes right. it generally yeah. less successful
0: exactly and then on spelling mm-hmm. um you know where You've always had people like E.E. E. Cummins with his poetry, with not using capitals, you know, oh. not using you know, punctuation. You kind of go, okay. And he made a name for himself, but it's not somebody that's, oh, yeah, you know, to like, make sure you read him to get an idea of how you can successfully violate all the rules and have some modicum of success. Yeah. Um, what's, what's been your experience on that?
1: Well, there are always standout authors who might write, I think it was was it Nicola Barker who wrote a book that was one sentence that went on for, you know, six hundred pages or something. <laughs> that was very well reviewed and received, but you just thought, how do you read that? How do you ever pause for breath? Um, and then there are others that dispense with any punctuation at all. I mean, it makes it a challenge to read for the normal yeah. reader. Um But if they're a very good writer, they can make it work. So that is fascinating. I mean, there's obviously famously Clockwork Orange, which is written almost in a foreign language. Eventually,
0: Mm -hmm. you kind
1: of just, your brain makes a intuitive leap and you can just understand what's going on somehow. So if you're a very, very good writer, you get away with it.
0: I guess it would also have to do with your audience. If If you're trying to be a popular author, you need to make something that communicates as well, Yeah, you know, so to have something that's okay, I'm doing something that's very unique and very uh, different. And I'm, I'm being, I'm making myself more interesting. And instead of having something that's, you can be interested in, oh. then that's, you know, that's one thing, but it just seems like.
1: Yeah. It almost becomes, obscures the book in the end, doesn't it? Because it becomes yeah. about the gimmick.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, Perhaps if you're going for Gen A then and they speak or refer to each other in a certain fashion to address them, you need to be able to communicate what's real to them. So that gets back to one of the earlier questions on this, on this interview. It's just, if you're young speaking to an adult and if you're an adult speaking to someone who's young, what would be some tools or some, some things that you suggest maybe it could be done to help guarantee, you know, to hedge your bet to be successful?
1: (laughs) Well, you risk being rather bland if you do that, don't you? They think I want to appeal to everyone. I mean, you can just be purist and say, do you know what, this is a book for young people. And so I'm going to use, you know, Gen Z speak and that's going to be fine and no one over 40 is going to understand a word I'm saying but that doesn't matter because this book isn't intended for them
0: and actually right.
1: there's plenty of books I do pick up that have been very well reviewed and think oh this just doesn't speak to me because it's talking about experiences I'm not really interested in and don't don't really get what it's all mm-hmm. about and I put it down again but you know my 20 year old niece probably laps it up and thinks it's fantastic um, and I think you just have to think that's fine you know, books aren't for every. I mean, that book isn't for everyone. It will have a genuine audience. Um
0: yeah, we do have some authors that go, they'll write their mainline books, but they also then go write YA yeah, and children. You know, Brandon Mull, um, he writes children's books, YA books, and adult. Yeah. He does all three, but he calls them all three categories.
1: Yeah. Funny enough, I think YA is in many ways an undervalued category because there are some very good YA writers who write far more insightful and challenging books than many people who would be classified as adult authors. And I think that's a shame, actually. You know, when I've ever picked up a particularly well-reviewed YA book, I've always thought, wow, this is really hard-hitting and, you know, really addresses issues that fascinate me. It's Mm -hmm. almost the packaging and the genre in which it's classified starts to put people off. So, for instance, Colleen Hoover, who doesn 't care what I say about her because she sells a million trillion billion copies. <laughs> I mean, I did pick up one of hers the other day and thought, "Oh my God, I must find out what what'm you know what 's Colleen Hoover all about. Absolutely not for me. I just thought I just can 't read any more of this so but there's you know several million people out there who will disagree with me
0: Mhm yeah, um, Brandon Sanderson was uh Speaking to him, this is, I know, last year, the year before. And he does, you know, he does the different, he's got the Cosmere, which is really intricate, complex, you know, many, many uh, lines running at the same time. And then you've got the, I think, Sky, not Skylark, that was E.E. Doc Smith, but his YA one, which is a very simple, it's only got two or three storylines going at a given Hmm. time. So it's a lot easier to follow. I actually like YA quite a bit. The covers mm-hmm. can be a turnoff, so I bypass mm-hmm. that because the covers are for that audience, yeah. which I definitely am not. But I have so much news I keep up with and so much other stuff, real-world things. I don't mind having a simple storyline to follow and just kind of like mm-hmm. chill as I'm reading it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to have the stuff that mm-hmm. I have to like really focus and, and get into. So sometimes it's fun to have a nice break.
1: Yeah, and I mean, they're unexpected things. So I picked up Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow the other day because, you know, I'd seen a lot of word of mouth about it, mostly about uh, younger readers, and it's about computer games, which I have nothing, you know, I don't play computer games.
0: Right. And I thought
1: it was a terrific story. I mean, it was just clearly not necessarily for me as a, as a reader, but I just thought it was a really strong story of a, a relationship that, you know, was so close that they could be quite hugely rude to each other. You know, they were business partners and kind of childhood friends in a way that I thought, wow, you know, my relationships wouldn't survive if I was that rude to someone else. But, you know, it, it was mm. very interesting.
0: Wow. Yeah. One thing that we find also with um, Rise of is that we have, uh, it's usually half a dozen to 10 years ahead of the curve. Because these yeah. are the winners now, they're going to be the new major names in science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. that we uh, that we publish. So it's interesting. Seeing like the the whole steampunk, we read it in Rise of the Future half a dozen years before it became something mm-hmm. you saw on the shelves, and some of the various fantasy tropes and the AI, the uploading oneself, all those things were usually seen five to ten years before you mm-hmm. started seeing them there. So. That's another thing that, that makes it a little bit unique with Writers of the Future oh, is that you see stuff right. before it becomes a trend out there.
1: Interesting, of course, as our world becomes more science fiction-y, how science fiction writers can, oh, can, can still come up with new tropes and think, well, what, what can't we
0: Variations on a theme? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, now everything yes. that they've ever imagined can be done.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. You were talking a little bit earlier about the um, – uh, self-publishers then evolving into indie. That's something that Kevin Anderson, I don't know if you know him, Kevin J. Anderson, uh, he's one of the ones that helps write the uh the prequels, all the Dune books, with uh Brian with uh Brian Herbert, Frank's mm-hmm. son. He's uh he's hundred plus 120 books published plus however many jillion short stories. But um he had a problem because his his uh books would go out of print with the big houses and then they had the rights and he, what can they do? So yes. he actually created his own press, Wordfire Press, to be able to, and that was the original solution, was to be able to keep his books in print. And then he started taking other uh, authors that he you, liked.
1: We have a mechanism to revert the rights from the publishers. That's been slightly a problem, I think, because of print on demand. Effectively, books don't go out of print anymore. So reverting right. rights is quite challenging.
0: Yeah, so before that became the th- the thing, uh, he's had word fire for like I don't know fifteen, okay. twenty years now. So, but that was his solution. He got his rights back, was able to, to get them to revert. Yeah, the with the print on demand. Now you're right, that's it's changed the whole scene But then we also work a lot with with authors to like, okay, know what you're getting into before you sign something. Mm. You know, that's that's really that's really important if you're going to sign away your book. For the sake of, I'm going to be published, mm. you know. Um, but anyway, so he created his own publishing house, Wordfire Press, and then um, Dean Wesley Smith. Likewise, he's he's got like 600 novels he's written, and his uh, wife, uh, Chris Rush, Christine Catherine Rush, they've published so much, so they created their own WMP um, Publishing to handle their own. They got five staff just to keep their books in print, okay. you know. Yeah. But it's that's a definite transition that that has occurred based on UK now, and if you have information on the US as well, but in terms of how to properly go about if you are going to work with someone else to license your book, to get right, give rights to somebody for an audiobook or for a foreign language, what would be some of your um, safeguards that you would encourage somebody to uh, heed?
1: Do you mean as a self-published author or as a, a traditional author?
0: Either one, just about getting into contracts.
1: Sure, I would join an association, either the Society of Authors or Ali for if you're an independent author, independent publisher. Uh, if you join the Society of Authors, they'll give you a kind of a little brief on contracts and just say, this is what you need to look out for. Um, they'll probably have a suggested standard contract that you could then just check off everything in it and make sure that you're pu- happy with what your publisher's offering you. And I don't know much about publishers' contracts now. I mean, when I was a publisher, obviously, we were doing it all the time. But there's all sorts of things you've got to watch out for, like if there are very high discounts, given your percentage of the sale prices. You're not a percentage of the published price. You're a percentage of what the book was sold at. So obviously, that impacts your income. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but yes, definitely ask the experts. If there's i mean and and it's not expensive, I think you just join the society right. authors, and they just say, here are the standard contracts we recommend,
0: okay. but you know
1: most publishers, if they're uh, reputable i mean obviously there's very interesting publishers, like unbound, where I think, and I can't remember what the model is now, but it was where the author kind of has a a partnership with the publisher and you know doesn't take. I don't think it's traditional royalties and advance as such. I think they just work together and promote it together and they jointly take the the rewards, as it were. So
0: which yeah, you know, I think it's becoming easier to to make happen too, as the the downside of publishing houses becoming more and more consolidated. So there's only three or four major houses anymore with all their imprints. <clears throat> it gets easier for the uh, self and any published mindset to make hay. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. Now, let's pretend that we have an author that is um deceased and has a big line of books very very successful was a major name in in the um the golden age of science fiction and and publishing 30s and 40s and then came out and celebrated 50 years with which became a monumental best-selling science fiction book let's say it's called Battlefield Earth and uh, is making its way back into a country say like the UK so what would be some like successful actions that (laughs) such an author (laughs) might want to take and do to um, ensure that um, it's a the best way to be able to introduce himself to uh, an audience like, for example, in the UK?
1: I mean, there's your problem. In a, in a nutshell, there isn't an author, is there? <laughs> 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 I mean, unless you had an avatar. Now, avatars are all the thing, aren't they? You know, you got Elvis and ABBA. If you could get an avatar that went round and did virtual signings, that would be fun, wouldn't it?
0: that would be scary
1: but you know quite very scary but
0: very fun yes
1: (laughs) um I mean it's much trickier I think when you don't have an author
0: (laughs) yeah no it is it is a definite thing but it is uh there are either authors that don't tour even if authors that like you said they're very shy and they don't like to tour I mean touring is very exhausting and Mm -hmm. Some publishers don't like to tour anymore because it's so expensive. And when you go to a bookstore and you sell 10, 15 books, how much is that really worth the cost of spending and touring with a publicist, that author? I mean,
1: it's worse in the States, obviously, because the distances are so huge. I mean, you could do it here much more cheaply. And obviously, it really only works if you tie it in with all the local media. So you get a a local newspaper and a local radio station and that Mm -hmm. kind of... But I think, I mean, for the outlay, of course, I guess an online campaign of some sort makes much more sense. And if we're talking about science fiction and fantasy, then you're talking to an audience who is incredibly digital and online and, you know, that kind of thing. So what about
0: like the um, I mean, you do, conventions? Of
1: course, you need to go and buy some data from uh, Nielsen that tells you who the audience is for science fiction and fantasy. Um, and how they find out about the books they buy and concentrate on that as your marketing outlet.
0: Good. And have you experienced like science fiction conventions being a a factor in UK? It's a big factor in America. I'm not sure what it's like in UK. I mean,
1: there's a couple of biggies here. Uh, It's not the same as the States, definitely. I mean, Comic-Con is the big thing here now and manga and all that kind of, what's it called? cosplay oh yeah cosplay cosplay and that's got a really young audience it's very Mm -hmm. interesting it's kind of teenagers as much as anything um and you know you know obviously forbidden planet yes Um, but yeah i mean there are science fiction conventions but i I, they're not so big
0: here okay so for a um But anyway, so our working with you came about from working for working with Elwin Hubbard's Battlefield Earth and also Mm -hmm. for the Elwin Hubbard Writers of the Future series, and we've we've had like I like was joking at the beginning like um, we've worked together on that and we've had some considerable success. You know, as it continues to grow there because of working with Book Brunch, of which you know that's maybe why I wanted to uh, invite you on as a guest to discuss that Mm -hmm. and for other people listening who one, either want to find out what's cool to read and anything about publishing trends to subscribe to Book Brunch, but also your tips and directions because you're definitely on the pulse of publishing in, in, uh, in the UK.
1: Thank you. Well, we hear, we hear quite a lot. We don't report it all, but we hear quite a lot.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, um, anyway, we our hour is, is up and, uh, at least I got through two questions. So,
1: uh, <laughs> I was about to say all those questions we talked about beforehand. How many of those did we actually answer? Yeah,
0: we got through just a couple of them. But Good. anyway, I knew that would happen. Um, but um,
1: well, it's been great talking
0: to you. Actually, thank you very much. Yeah, I very much appreciate this. Yes, yes. Good. Okay. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Riders of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network. Where you can find these products as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation was introduced in 1899, and 2024 marks its 125th birthday. So happy birthday, Carnation. It's been making delicious milk products for one and a quarter centuries and is still going strong. If that doesn't show consumer support... I don't know what does. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Elvin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged for four decades. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Joe. Thank you very much, John. Goodbye. Goodbye.